Chapter Twenty One of Bonne Marie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susanna Mason. Bonne Marie, a tale of Normandy and Paris by Henry Greville, translated by Mary Neil Sherwood. Chapter Twenty One. Wars and rumors of wars. Already the dead leaves lay in heaps under the box and purvey hedges where they had been whirled by the autumnal gusts, and every morning a squad of men with brooms had the greatest difficulty in clearing the Champs-Elysees. Winter was near at hand, and the gay room in the open air, so cool and fresh with the milky globes which seemed to surround it like the setting of a jewel, must be abandoned. Some hall must be discovered in the centre of Paris, where the fumes of tobacco deadened the air already exhausted by the innumerable gas-burners. This had been under due discussion during the day, and Bonne-Marie had felt her heart fail her at the prospect. To her, after the free, out-of-door life to which she had been accustomed, the close atmosphere of the stifling rooms was a veritable penance. Once, when she had with difficulty obtained an hour of freedom, she had gone with Clotilde to the theatre, and was more bewildered and uncomfortable than pleased, which charmed her friend, who called her from that time the pretty savage. The evening that Maureen decided to go to the café, the concert troupe was in a great state of excitement. They had just been informed that the manager had taken one of the finest halls in Paris, and looked forward to a splendid season. At the end of September, that is, almost at once, they would emigrate, and a new repertoire would enchant their old public, while the old one would charm the ears of an audience who would not fail to fill the room night after night. A very important position was given to Mademoiselle Lucien, in the new arrangement, Morissette having wisely said to himself, I pay her an enormous salary and must get my money back at least. This was not altogether agreeable to other members of the troupe, and while Bonne-Marie naturally accepted with joy every opportunity of appearing on the stage and being welcomed with applause, the other singers, seeing themselves cast into the shade, amused themselves in grumbling at the manager and in saying very hateful things of this comparatively new member of their troupe. Clotilde, who at first had defended her, ended by going over to the camp of the enemy, for that morning Marisette, without notifying her or anyone else, had placed Lucien's name in large letters at the top of the placard. There was a grand revolution. The manager bore the first assault with unflinching courage. He was accustomed to such scenes, for he had seen plenty of them in his troubled career. Evening came, Bonne-Marie, perfectly unsuspicious and not having seen the placard, found herself greeted by a storm of epigrams, some as coarse as they were cutting. Her new-born Parisian acuteness was not as yet sufficiently developed to enable her to grasp the full meaning of all she heard. She understood half, however, and guessed the rest. Calm and dignified, pale with indignation and burning contempt, she submitted quietly to all this sarcasm, and feigned not to understand it. Her coldness and self-possession piqued her companions, and the women sought to engage their adorers in the contest. But the men were too wise to commit themselves, for Lucien was very pretty, and it was not worth while to quarrel with her, for who could say what might happen? In the midst of all this, Marlinard came in. If he had been desirous of knowing Bonne-Marie, it was because Clotilde herself had inspired him with the desire. Clotilde was one of those women, of which there are many, who never can keep anything to themselves. Melinard, who had recently become her best and most intimate friend, had heard her utter the most extravagant eulogiums on Mademoiselle Lucien, the result of which was that Lucien, whom he hardly knew by sight, seemed to him more attractive than Clotilde herself. 
And then there was still another reason for his sudden change. Clotilde was horribly extravagant, while Lucien seemed very quiet and inclined to be economical. Now Melinard, although rich, was a young man who kept a very sharp lookout for his own interests. When Moria entered the concert hall, Clotilde was singing. Melinard, sleeping in a rickety console table, was pouring gallant speeches into Bonne Marie's ears, who hardly heard them. Some subtle association had carried her back to Almondville, and she was thinking of her long, solitary walks on the seashore, of all her ambitions, dreams, and hopes, and of him who had suddenly appeared on her horizon, and who opened the pathway to her of fortune and happiness. Her dream was not yet realized. Morin loved her, but he did not love her enough to make her forget all the bitterness of life. Tired of the monotonous flow of Melinard's words, she turned towards him to answer with some jesting remark that would show him that this was the case, when as she lifted her eyes she saw Maureen on the threshold. The young girl's heart beat more quickly with an emotion that almost overpowered her with the superstition natural to those in love, and also to many who are not. She regarded this sudden apparition of this young man a direct reply of providence to the questions that she had just been asking herself. Yes, she would be happy yet. The expression of joy on that fair face ought to have softened a very stern judge, but Clotilde, who at that moment appeared by the other door, was no judge whatever. Seeing that Melinard was leaning over her friend in an attitude of adoration, and catching a glimpse of the look of joy in the girl's eyes, she believed herself betrayed. Folding her beautiful arms over her goddess-like bust, she exclaimed, "'Upon my word, this is delightful. It is not enough, it seems, to take my place on the placard, but you must also take my friends.' The other persons who were at present turned around, delighted to see a nice little quarrel well started between two rival stars. They had been in a perpetual state of wonder that they had so long lived in harmony. "'Your friends?' replied Bonne Marie, vexed at hearing herself addressed with such scanty ceremony in the presence of Morin. "'Your friends? I was not aware that you knew this gentleman.' "'You are too virtuous, perhaps, to know such things,' answered Clotilde. "'But your pretense of excessive virtue deceives no one. No one at all, do you understand?' "'When we begin to talk of virtue,' answered Bonne Marie coldly, "'I have nothing more to say. "'Yours brings you an income, while mine places me in debt. "'There is little family likeness in such virtues.' "'A shout of laughter was heard on all sides. "'Lucian!' cried the call-boy. "'Lucian, you are wanted!' Bonne Marie rose hastily, but she had the whole length of the foyer to pass, "'and she could not avoid hearing her ex-friend's last insult.' When a woman is virtuous, she prefers to remain in the country than to make her appearance as a singer in a casino. That is my opinion, and I say only what everyone else thinks. Thereupon Clotilde made a scene with Melinard, who, with a hang-dog expression and dangling eyeglass, wished himself anywhere but where he was. Morin heard all this in silence. Clotilde's friendship was not a brevet. Of virtue for Bonne Marie, but her hatred was even less so. Besides, she insinuated that she had known for a long time much that she did not choose to say. Those ambiguous words, however, did not pain the young man. Had he never regarded Lucien as a vestal, although she seemed to him better educated, more intelligent, and infinitely more original than any of the other women of her class. 
what did it matter to him whether she had had or had not had any adventures he was not in search of a wife after this apostrophe of clotilde's he went out calmly and posted himself at the door bonne marie after singing disappeared among the crowd of visitors in the foyer and hurried away to change her dress she dreaded to meet Morin while she was smarting under the words she had heard. Would he believe them? she asked herself. How could she exculpate herself? Anxious, unhappy, cut to the heart, sick to death of all this petty jealousy and discord, she asked for but one thing, solitude, where she might hope to recover her lost serenity. End of chapter 21 Recording by Susanna Mason